And so the evidence is there, the evidence is presented, uh, that when you read it, you can, uh, you can believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, <coughs> the Son of God, the Savior of the world. John says that you may believe that you may have life in his name. Uh, <clears throat> I want to make one statement in regard to the inspiration of God's word. <clears throat> Is his word sufficient to cause us to believe that there was a Jesus of Nazareth and that he done the things that are claimed that he done? Absolutely. The malice of man proves it. Man hates God. Jesus said that. Jesus said to his disciples, uh, the world will hate you because they hated me. And they hated me because I hated my father that sent me. And the very fact that the world hates God, hates the truth, wants to ignore it and get it out of the way, the very fact that they couldn't do it proves in that one instance alone the inspiration of the Bible and the authenticity, the accuracy of its writing. There's many other proofs, but that... I did want to bring that out. You and I need to look at that sometimes to recognize that we have sufficient evidence that there was a Jesus of Nazareth that lived 2,000 years ago that was born to the seed of David, just like the scriptures declared, that came uh, because of God's intent to redeem the world. We believe that because of the record in regard to him. Because you see the miracles that Jesus done, the life that he lived is like anybody else that lives in this world. We live in a time-space dimension we call history, and it's undeniable. Once things are recorded in that record, they're undeniable. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to get off of that and we get off into inspiration <laughs> there are three outstanding words in these two verses John 20 verse 30 and 31 there's three outstanding words in these two verses uh, that we want to look at and they are signs S-I-G-N-S signs believe number two and life number three <clears throat> these are the pivot points of thought, the pivots of thought, and they deserve definition. And so we'll define these words before we get into the book. <coughs> the word signs, we'll start with that one first. Signs is the English translation of the Greek semi, S-E-M-E-I-A, semi, however you pronounce that. But that's the original language that was used when John wrote this. And it, uh, it's characteristic of Jolanian word for miracles. All right. So John then presents these miracles that Jesus did, not merely as supernatural deeds, but as uh, material witnesses uh, <coughs> These are to material witnesses to do uh, to uh, uh, underlying spiritual truths. I'll get it out in a minute. So then, miracles are signposts pointing to the ultimate conclusion that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. 
Now you drive the highways, you know what signposts do. They tell you what's up ahead. What's, uh, they tell you facts. There's a curve up here. You need to slow down. So these uh, signs or these miracles that Jesus done are signposts. Their miracles were not done just to, just to relieve pain. They did. And Jesus, it says, healed everyone that came to him. But that wasn't the purpose of miracles. Hebrews 2, verse 4, will tell you why there were miracles. We don't have them today because they've already finished their work. Miracles done what God intended for them to do and established the truth, and consequently we don't need them anymore. But yet there's a lot of people confused about that. They're out here calling this a miracle, that a miracle, because they don't understand it. <clears throat> they call childbirth a miracle. Is it? Childbirth, like many other things, is a result of natural law. Laws of life that God instituted when he created this universe and created you and I. And so we've got to be aware of the fact that the world is trying to dampen the purpose and the, the, uh, the impression that miracles have on you by telling you, oh, they're just, you know, anything's a miracle. No, they're not. Take this definition to the bank. Miracles define things that are not natural in life. In other words, they defy natural law. Here's a man who died, Lazarus. He's dead. His body has been stinking for four days. The Jews laughed at Jesus when he said he's not dead, he's asleep, and I'm going to wake him. They laughed at him. There was evidence the man was dead. He stunk for four days. It says that Jesus was off with his disciples when Lazarus died. And he deliberately waited four days. Why did Jesus wait four days? Because he was a good friend of Jesus's. Lazarus was. And so was his sisters. He waited four days because he wanted that body to be in the smelling mode. Don't you see that when you read that story? And then he went to the tomb and stood afar off and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead came forth. He was wrapped in linen, strips of linen, which the Bible declares was the custom of the Jews. And in that linen was a hundred pound weight of uh, a glue substance. That's where we get our idea of mummies. You ever seen uh, the living dead or the mummies, the movies that man makes? That's where they come from. That's the background that gave rise to it. Because here a mummy come out of the tomb, a waddling because he couldn't walk. He was wrapped up. And the audience there on that occasion, all the Jewish hierarchy and Lazarus' sisters and friends, they were so shocked, all they could do was jaw gaped open was stare. And Jesus had to tell them, well, loose the man, let him go. Now that's a miracle because that defied natural law. Natural law says, like Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die. Not twice, not three times, not four times, once. And then the judgment. And that's the natural law. And that's the law we know. You haven't seen anybody coming into town from the cemetery out here, have you? I hope not. Because we'd have to send you to, for help. <laughs> because that don't happen. That's natural law. So a miracle is that which defies natural law. Well, I don't think we get that point. But it just upsets me terribly every time I listen to the television or something and somebody pops off, that's a miracle, that's a miracle, that's a miracle. They're dampening the power of miracles. 
In Hebrews 2, verse 4, about miracles. Why did why did God what did God use them for? I think verse 4 tell you. God also bearing them witness. Now we've got to stop and answer who the them is in that context. If you read it, it's very clear. He's talking about the them are the Lord Jesus Christ and the twelve apostles that he chose. Alright, God bore witness to these men. Uh, they were special. One was the Son of God, and the rest of them was the ones that Jesus chose to be apostles. He never chose anybody else, just those men to be apostles. <laughs> and so, verse 4 says, uh, how does it say it? God bearing them witness both with signs, signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost as God willed it. Jesus didn't get up in the morning and say, well, I think I'll go down to Jerusalem and just uh, just put everybody in uh, uh, in shock by doing some miracle. No, 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 no. God planned this great movement of salvation to its conclusion. Jesus fulfilled that mission. The Holy Spirit revealed it. And God chose the time of those miracles. Listen to it again. Uh, how's it start again? God also, God also bearing them witness. His Son and the Apostles. Both with signs and miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost. And I've got that out of order there, but... Uh, the miracles was that which proved the authenticity of Jesus. Now, being the Son of God. Now, do you think for a minute that man, being created by God, has the power to overrule God and to wash away the proof that's here in regard to Jesus being the Son of God? If God sent His Son to die on the cross, do you think He'd just step back? Oh, look what man has done to my salvation. Why, they destroy the truth. They put doubt in the minds of everybody, and they do. But the clarity of Scripture can erase the doubt. And that's why John said he wrote what he wrote. And so we're not following fairy tales. We're following things that happened in a time-space dimension we know as history. It's undeniable. It's undeniable. One other thing, the devil loves the truth. He just don't like all of it. He loves enough of the truth to convince you that he's God's man. That's where these preachers come in in the denominational world. They speak the scriptures and people listen to them and you go tell them, well, that's not the church Christ died for. And they're wondering, what in the world are you talking about? Our preacher quotes more scripture than you do. How can you say that? Well, the reason I can say it is because there's a law of birth and induction to get into Christ by way of baptism. The scriptures are very clear on that. They deny that. See, the devil likes truth if he can use it to deceive you. He quoted Scripture to Eve in the garden. As God said, Thou shalt not eat of the tree, lest you die. He was quoting God's Word. And then in the argument with the woman, he just added one phrase, Thou shalt not surely die. And so... The things that we're going to read in John's Gospel happened 2,000 years ago. But they are undeniable because God affirmed Him to be Son by the miracles that He did. And again, history testifies to it. Secular history does. Jesus just isn't recorded in the Bible. There's volumes of history books that's written about that man. 
He's made such an impression on this world, it's unbelievable. In fact, let me read you a thing I picked up years ago. Uh, here it is. The title of this is Jesus Lives On. And he'll live on to the end of time. Nearly 2,000 years ago, there was a man born. He was the result of a miracle. He lived among the common and he drew up unnoticed among the residents of Nazareth. He traveled very little and left his country only twice in his lifetime. Once as a child of Egypt and as a man to Syrophoenicia. His family had no renown, and he was known as the son of a carpenter. As a child, he caused Herod to be alarmed. Why was Herod alarmed? You remember reading about the, uh, the wise men that came from the east, from Persia? How did they know there was going to be? Well, it's because Herod, Herod, Herod was worried about this new king taking his spot. Yeah. What shook Herod up was the fact that the Old Testament prophesied about it and the wise men from the east that weren't even Jews. As they were wise men who served the king and looked at all things politically and advised the king in regard to politics. And they came before the king and said, look here, we've read these Hebrew scriptures and here is definitely... Uh, the presenta presentation of a king that's going to be born in a manger. And they came to pay tribute to him because they didn't want any, they wanted peace to exist between Persia and, and Jerusalem. And so they came to pay tribute. Those were, now they understood the scriptures when the Jews didn't. They acknowledged what the scriptures said when the Jews wouldn't. And those uh, uh, and Herod, he come to find out that it was recorded in the Bible that there was to be a king born on that time and in that area, and he became very alarmed. He even sent to the before he become alarmed, he sent to the high priests and the scribes and the Pharisees of the law. And he said, is there any truth in what these men have said to me? And they said, they said, well, let us search it out. They didn't know themselves. That's how ignorant they were of the truth that they had in their own scriptures. <clears throat> and so they searched the scriptures and found out that these wise men from the East had credibility in why they came. Because there was a prophesied king to be born at a certain time in a certain place. They come to see it. And it says that Herod became very alarmed. So alarmed that in his jealousy he had all the baby boys two years and under killed. Trying to get the child. So as a boy, Jesus dumbfounded the temple doctors. And as a man, he opened eyes to sunlight. He told storms to hush. And he made water blush into wine. He strengthened limbs. He opened lungs, lifted hearts, and lightened burdens. Thousands stand at the sea and shout, He healed me. <laughs> The hungry of his day said he fed me. Hearts once jailed by sin declares he freed me. He never wrote a single volume, yet he has driven men to all ages to their pens. He's the object of choral anthems. He's the satisfier of poems and the reason for angels singing. Prophets have expressed his excellence with single words, like wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, 
Father of Peace. Uh, his kingdom came not as a marching army, nor did it boast of worldly strategy, and yet it conquered nations. Kind of makes your eyes lift up and look around across the world, doesn't it? To see the impact that Jesus has had on this world and still has to this very day. There's not another man in all of history that's lacking under the impact that Jesus had on this world. And that's one of the reasons is because God confirmed him to be his son and the savior of the world by miracles and signs and wonders which God did by them, by Jesus and his apostles. Uh, and so yet it uh, conquered nations. It beat swords into plowshares, just like the scripture said. And it made kings into converts. Hannibal is as silent as the Alps. Nero's songs, they smolder with, in the theaters of Rome. Alexander the Great is but a leaf in the forest of memory. And Napoleon serves only as a link in yesterday's history. But Jesus lives on. Against him, Herod's hand was slow. Satan's sword of skill melted. Death bowed in admittance of defeat. And the tomb yielded forth his glory. Yes, he who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on throughout the world, and taken up to glory, is indeed this very Christ. And I just quoted First uh, John 3, and uh, I don't know what verse. So Jesus, thank God, abounds unto this very day. Christians can rejoice because of the evidence, and sinners can repent when they come to be honest with what's recorded in history and in God's Word. And Paul declared, and I want I want that word to impress you about this, this book. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, along with other passages, Paul said the Word of God uh, every scripture is inspired of God. And because of it, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, to this intent that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's the nature of the Word of God. That means that every word down to the it and the the and all of that was put in there by God because the word inspiration uh, uh, God breathed huh? inspiration God breathed yes it's God's breath and so when you pick up this book and begin to read it shame on you if you even uh, if you don't uh, see that fact that you approach it as though, well, you yeah, uh, God planned to save man and he kind of given a vague idea to these men and they wrote it. Uh-uh, no, 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 no. Every word is inspired. It's God's breath. That'll change the way you look at the book and every word in it. What did Jesus tell the, the, the devil in Matthew 4? In the temptation. He said, man does not... Verse 4. Matthew 4, 4. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. Well, every word would be from Genesis through Revelation in the New Testament. Every word. Why did God write them? That I, I might, my salvation may be secure. 
and anchored in an anchor that only God could set. Man's not going to befuggle God. Never has, never will. Man wants to be God himself. He wants to decide his future. He wants to decide his lifestyle. He wants to decide everything. And he's not willing to submit to the mighty hand of God. But that's just the opposite of the man of God because Peter said in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, the man of God is one who humbles himself under that mighty hand of God that he may be exalted in due time. God will strengthen you, establish and settle you after you've suffered a while. That's what verse 11 says in that very text. After you've struggled a while, God will establish, strengthen, and settle you. Are you called upon to suffer? That's, that's a test of manhood, isn't it? Isn't that what we face in life? Peter said, if any man suffer, let him suffer as a Christian. You're going to suffer. But boy, the suffering this world can is unbelievable. The bondage that it puts on man. That's why Jesus in Matthew 11 said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He was talking to the drug addicts, the whores. He was talking to all those people that we would label as having the disease of leprosy. Because the Old Testament, God prophesied that he would come and deliver the leper. And he used that word to speak of all the people that has problems because of man's philosophies. And what did I bring that up for? Every uh, man lives by every word by the mouth of God. Yeah, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so God uh, didn't just give men some vague idea of what they used to write about, and they put it in their own words. No, 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 no. Do you know Peter was preaching to himself in Acts 2 and didn't know it until it came out? You read Acts 2 when he stood up to preach in verse 14. He got down to verse 22, and he started with the Jews. He said, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man that was approved by God among you, as ye yourselves also know. And then when the Jews stood up out of all them thousands upon ten thousands, and when the Jews stood up and said, we don't know that, Peter. We don't know that. They knew it and couldn't deny it. He said, him, verse 23, Jesus being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, You've taken with wicked hands and crucified and slain, whom God raised from the dead because it wasn't possible. He's beholden of it. And so, uh, <coughs> Peter was preaching to himself because the Holy Spirit came on him in a miraculous way. Yeah, that's what I was getting at in verse 23. His mouth, the Holy Spirit was speaking through Peter. That's evident because of Matthew uh, 10, verse 19 and 20. Jesus told those men and those men only. He didn't tell you or you or anybody else. He told those 12 men. He said, take no thought what you shall say or what you shall speak when you're brought up before magistrates. Now you and I are going to give some thought, aren't we? If we're called over to the halls of justice over here, or whatever they call it, uh, we're going to take some thought, aren't we? What we're going to say to the judge? It's going to scare us bad. He said, take no thought. For it'll be given you in that very hour of what you shall say. And then he explained further in the next verse, <coughs> verse 20. He said, for verily it is not you that speaks, but the spirit of my father which speaks in you. And so here's Peter up preaching on the day of Pentecost. He was the one in Matthew 16 when the Lord began his ministry. He told those 12 men he chose and said, One day you'll go with me back to Jerusalem. And you'll see me tried, maligned, and crucified. That was the plan of God. 
And Peter, being a man, jumped up. No, no, that'll never happen. Because you see that sword I'm carrying, they'll eat all three feet of it before they'll get to you. And they'll walk across my dead body to do it. I'll defend you. What did the Lord say to him? Get behind me, Satan, adversary, for you mind not the things of God, but the things of men. Did Peter understand that? No, he sat in the church of Bitten City and heard that and didn't understand it. What I'm trying to say is it's not, it's not a, 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 a bad thing. Our maturity comes gradual, doesn't it? And his did too. And yet he was one that Jesus chose as he chose all 12 of those men. In John 15, verse 16, he said, You didn't choose me. I chose you. Can you see God, uh, the Lord choosing a man like Peter? Like James and John, the sons of thunder? He did. Why didn't he go down to Jerusalem and choose the great lawyers of the law that had pedigrees on the wall if they'd been to college? They've been to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and Cambridge. And you're going to overlook them and hire and, and, and select fishermen? And that's the way the world looked on them because every time the enemy spoke in the book of Acts of the apostles, they spoke of them in degradation. They said, are not these lowly Galileans? And how here we ever man in our own language where we were born from these men? Where did they get such an education? But the Lord chose fishermen. He chose Peter. And Peter didn't learn when Jesus told him that he was the adversary of God's purpose. And so, three years later, Peter drew his sword in the garden and, slit, and cut off the high priest's servant's ear in defending Jesus. And Jesus said, put up your sword, Peter. How can we fulfill the will of God if we fight? I have legions of angels at my disposal if I uh, don't want to carry through with this. But he had already told the Father, not my will, but thine be done. As he went to the cross. And afterwards, when Peter stood preaching, well, even in Acts 1, when Jesus was with the apostles for... Forty days and nights speaking pertaining to the kingdom after he rose from the dead, Peter still didn't understand because Peter and the apostles, they all asked him in verse 7, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said, It's none of your business. You wait at Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. They did, the Spirit came and inspired them. And they spoke the Spirit's message. And so Peter's up preaching in Acts 2. And <laughs> verse 23, what did he tell them Jews? His vocal cords were speaking. His eyes were bugged out, I'm sure. And he was in shock because he, he learned from his own vocal cords because the Spirit was speaking. Jesus said, don't take no thought what you say because it will be given you in that very hour. Because it's not you that speaks. It's the Spirit of my Father which is in you. So here Peter states in verse 23, Him, speaking of Jesus, Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you've taken the wicked hands of crucified and slain. Jesus was crucified by the determined counsel and the foreknowledge of God. God foreknew it. God predetermined it. When you read Galatians 4, 4, you need to see that picture there in the one word. It says, in the fullness of the times. Now that statement means when time was right. When God looked down through the corridor of time and he saw that there'd be a time when Pilate would do what Pilate did. When the Jews would be called, uh, cooked off in the cauldron of light and do what they did in crucifying his son. When he saw that all the dominoes were set for the tip over, he sent forth his son, born of the seed of woman, born under the law, that he might rescue them, you and me, who are under law. And if we was under law today, we'd all be dead, wouldn't we? 
Oh, we might still be breathing a little bit if God's grace allowed it, but we'd be dead men walking, wouldn't we? Because law condemns, law kills. Scriptures teach that. But here Peter <laughs> come to learn that Jesus was destined to die at Calvary. He was going to defend him. All three years, he, he was determined to defend him. He packed that sword waiting for the occasion. And when it come, he pulled that sword and he smote off the high priest's servant's ear. I think that he was a little nervous, don't you? I believe he missed his mark because I think he was looking right here. And Jesus said, put it up. How can we fulfill the will of God if we fight? And Peter didn't know that until the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and spoke through his vocal cords. Did Peter and the apostles learn from the very message they preached? Yes, they did. Yes, they did because in John 14, 25 and 26 and John 16, verse 12 and 13, on those two occasions, Jesus promised those men the Spirit. And when He come, what did He say the Spirit would do? He will... He will guide you into all things. He'll reveal all things to you. And so these were inspired men. And so the Word of God is the Word of God. It is the breath of God. Every word in it. Now don't be foolish and come to me and say... Well, yeah, but there's this translation and that translation and this and that. And scholars say this all the way it ought to be written and others say this way. That's all a bunch of bunk. Every bit of it. English is an inferior language to the Koine Greek in which the Bible was written. And so when you try to translate from a perfect language into an imperfect language like English. We don't like to admit that because we're Americans. Why, it's our language. Why, we're the best in the world. Hogwash. Anyway, when they translate it, don't you know God knew about the translations? Do you think man could outsmart him and lead men off? Don't ever think that. Romans 4.17, Paul said that God calls those things to be not as though they already were. In other words, he looks down through the corridors of time and he sees the very end from the beginning. There's nothing that surprises God. There's nothing that shocks God. There's nothing that uh, is revealed to God as though he didn't know it. He knew about the, the uh, translations. After all, man has never made a language. God made the languages of the world. You read about the Tower of Babel? Ba uh, Tower of Babel. Babel. God confounded those people with languages they didn't understand one another. He had commissioned them to go into the world and multiply and su secure it, subdue it. And they weren't going into all the world. They was all holed up right there. Let's build a tower so that if another flood comes, we'll escape it. They didn't believe God, did they? Because what he put in the sky as a sign he'd never destroy the earth with a flood. <laughs> the rainbow. So the miracles were signposts along the way uh, to establish the fact that he was divine in every respect. Well, what were these signs? Well, there's seven of them in all. Uh, that's exclusive of the resurrection and the drought of fishes that's recorded in the 21st chapter. 
The re and the reason for that is the resurrection differs from others because the act itself did not take place in public sight and because it was not performed on someone or something apart from Jesus himself. <coughs> and the drought of fishes is in the epilogue, which is not a part of the main body of John's gospel. <coughs> but there's seven of them that's recorded. Each of these seven signs reveals some specific characteristic of Jesus' power and his person. And they're in order in the Gospel of John uh, as follows. And I got it on the board there. Number one, in, in uh, Matthew 2, verse 1 through, or excuse me, John 2, verse 1 through 11. You'll read the changing of water into wine. Into the fight, uh, in this first miracle of his ministry, Jesus revealed himself as the master of quality by uh, affecting instantaneously the change that the wine uh, produces over a period of months. Number two. Oh, incidentally, we can't leave that without some answer there. He changed the water to wine. And it says, after men had drunken, uh, uh, forget how it's stated, but he was not, he didn't make fermented wine. If he did, then the very fact that he made fermented wine would contradict many statements that his spirit revealed in other passages of Scripture in the Bible. So get that out of your mind. He didn't do that. He changed it to grape juice, the best that they ever know, the best they ever tasted. Uh, I'm going to have to pull myself out of this. Uh, <laughs> the word wine for centuries has been used in the King James Version for grape juice fresh off the vine and fermented both of them so when you're reading scriptures how does the English today look upon the word wine oh that's translate that's uh, fermented that's got alcohol in it. No, 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 no. You get a concordance and you look into the concordance on the word wine. And you'll find that the scriptures talks about the wine that was dripping from the vine. Now, you don't get fermented wine from the vine. And so there is proof in itself that uh, in King James Day, 1611, when the King James translation came out, wine in their culture meant either grape juice or fermented. That's all it meant. But nowadays, all it means is fermented. And you got some brother that's always popping up when you study this. Why? Jesus was making good wine that you could get drunk on. Because it said after men had drunk. Well... <laughs> If you look at the vernacular there, it's talking about how that they, after they drank a while, they uh, they lost their ability to taste good wine. The wine taster didn't. He knew what it was because he don't drink it. He just wallers it in his mouth and spits it out. Someone who drinks wine. Wine will culture palate of your tongue to where after a while you can't taste the quality of it. That's why wine tasters use a little bit and just take a sip and then they'll spit it out and rinse their mouth out as they're tasting the quality of different wines. You all looking at me like I've gone off and left Beetle somewhere. <laughs> You're getting scary. <laughs> 
<coughs> Another instance, Dad, is where Paul told Timothy to use a little wine because he had a stomach problem. Yeah. And that was grape juice, right? Yeah. Alcohol. Yeah. I'm not condemning alcohol. I'm just trying to show you that you can't contribute to Jesus making something that befoggles men's minds. The proverb writer said that wine opens the tongue and says things that causes wars among people. That's the nature of it. And you got Jesus making a fermented drink? No. no, no. Well, we're still trying to get into the Gospel of John. I'm sorry, but we're trying our best to get to it. And we ain't made it, and our time's up. So, next week we will begin to introduce the book in regard to these seven uh, qualities, or, or seven aspects of Jesus' uh, divine power. Every one of them proved him to be the master of, well, you can see there. Probably got a list of it by now. If you don't, you need to. And if, if you haven't thought about it, after services, uh, take your camera over here in the middle of the congregation and take a picture of it. And you can take it home and look at it. You don't have to write everything down. All right, so we got the first miracle out of the way. Next week, I'm sure we'll finish the rest of them. I'm sorry, the last couple of weeks we've been introducing a whole bunch of things prior to our study and getting into the book of John. We'll get there. So, huh? so uh, today's the 12th.